This is Course Correction, a podcast from Doha Debates. I'm Nelifa Hidayat. For season two, we're focusing on polarization. Each episode, I look at one big problem and talk to people from a wide range of views. I'm going to keep my mind open to new perspectives with the goal of seeing if there are solutions to these problems. And no other issue is so omnipresent than how tech is shaping our language and our lives. I mean, it's everywhere. We express ourselves with emojis and share our data widely by just asking a search engine a simple question. So much of our lives happens online these days and is dictated by how quickly we can consume information, factual or not. This episode is the second of our three-part arc where we unpack just how much tech influences our lives. No more than right now. Like many of you, I'm having most of my work conversations these days over Zoom. So if you hear a wobble or two, you can thank the Zoom gods for that. If you haven't had a chance to listen to our previous episode yet, hit pause on whatever tech device you're listening to me right now and go back. I talk to the godfather of fake news and to politicians dealing with the consequences of misinformation on the daily. The thing is, though, Tech doesn't just affect people in power, it affects us too. Today, we'll press a free speech purist on how far is too far to go. Regulating or restricting free speech may not actually solve the problems that you're trying to address because those who define and enforce free speech are always those who are in power. And we'll hear from two French entrepreneurs on what we should demand from big tech when it comes to free speech. We are at a crossroad where technology impact on the world is not uh, necessarily net positive, as a lot of uh, people working in tech want us to believe. We are not trying to make the world a better place. We are just trying to make money. Tech shapes how we think. It warps how we feel. And it can even push us to act in surprising ways. And no one knows that better than my friend Shahd Batal. Shahd is so beautiful. I actually find it better not to look at her directly in the face. The fact that one ocean and nearly a whole continent separates us means nothing because we keep in contact virtually all the time. I love Shahd. She's a queen. And here's why. Hey guys, good morning. Happy Sunday. Uh, Welcome back to my channel. I am going to Coachella today. Very last minute. I have no idea what... Shah Patel is a beauty influencer and a hijabi-wearing brand ambassador living in Los Angeles. Her influence doesn't just stop at her keen sense of style or her gorgeous glow. She's wielded her power and platform to encourage people to vote, land an interview with her hometown Minneapolis representative Ilhan Omar. I have representative Ilhan Omar with me. Today is going to be very lighthearted. I don't want to take up too much of your time. And to speak out against injustice. More often than not, the Black Muslim community is overlooked. There's a difference between being a Muslim and a Muslim woman and a woman of color Muslim and a Black Muslim woman. There is a difference. I don't want to hear we all go through the same struggle. No, we don't. Like me, Shahd is a first-generation kid. I was born in Afghanistan, a country embroiled in civil war and left for the safety of the UK. She was born in Sudan, raised in the United States and often feels torn between her two homes. Well, I do go back home and I am clearly the American, I'm clearly the foreigner. Every single year my Arabic is deteriorating more and more. 
uh, like being a first gen is the one, like I'm one generation from losing all of the culture. Shaht knows she's the link between keeping or losing her family's language, her family's culture and her family's story. In college, while protesting for Black Lives Matter, she became more aware of her voice and the power of speaking out. At the same time, Shaht would often tell me how her heart was broken as she watched Sudan's political situation deteriorate. The country ousted its leader Omar al-Bashir in 2019, but its transition to democratic rule has been marred in economic upheaval as people demand justice. The revolution was sparked by a rise in bread prices, fuel shortages, as well as rising inflation. Hundreds of protesters were killed before the military overthrew President Bashir in April 2019. A power-sharing agreement between the military and the forces of So, what could one 20-something-year-old living thousands of miles away do to help her Sudanese community? She knew the Western version of the Sudanese narrative, the one only sporadically covered in the media, was not the experience that she was seeing on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and Facebook. It seemed distorted, disrupted... And so she put her skills as an influencer to work, finding eye-opening protester videos and shareable photos that help others feel the same visceral connection to the story that she had. Take, for instance, a picture of a woman that went viral. 22-year-old Ala Saleh, standing on top of a car, leading a crowd in chants. Take a minute to Google her. That's A-L-A-A-S-A-L-A-H. The video still gives me chills. This photo of Allah posted to Twitter has gone viral the world over. Some see it as the defining image of the key role women have played in the uprising that toppled President Omar al-Bashir after some 30 years in power. But women's involvement in protests in Sudan isn't new. If this had happened 10 years ago, maybe, it would have been up to traditional media outlets like 24-hour news channels or the broadsheets to have brought it to people's attention. But Shaht has found a way to cut through mainstream media gatekeepers, to be her own brand, and with that, wield her own power to disrupt what she saw as a silent and therefore complicit media narrative. Obviously, like the Western world doesn't care about black people, so they're not going to pick up the stories. Um, until it gets bigger, until there is, you know, a woman that you can put, that, you know, you can draw and use as a symbol for everything. Um, so, yeah, it, it was watching in real time my family just kind of being like, yep, this is what's going on today. Shat has that power to use social media to put pressure on those in charge, whether it's traditional news gatekeepers or elected officials. Not that she's naive about social media. She knows that the same ability to bring attention to injustice can also be used to mask or distort the truth. Shaht is also aware that it can be a place for virtue signalling and not action. And how social media could confine us to our personal bubbles, isolating us from new ideas. Being online can sometimes feel like being in a shady flea market, where everyone is trying to sell you their opinion or idea, be it real, a knockoff or a dangerous fake. Shad helped me understand this better. The media is known to just like glaze over things that are happening right. far away from here, right? So it would have just been glazed over and nothing would have happened. But I think the power of social media was just the pressure that it was putting on old heads. 
it can feed into your narrative and show you what you want to see. And it is a very problematic space, but I also, I have a lot of faith and a lot of hope in the direction that people are going because I'm seeing, you know, Gen Z care more. I'm seeing people um, fight more. It was like, I love, I love the kids. I love the Gen Zers. And as my friend says, like, we're like, I'm literally the grandma of the Gen Zs. Facebook and Twitter have rules against saying things they deem too extreme and have been trying to purge their platform of hurtful and violent rhetoric. Recently, Facebook rolled out what they call their oversight board, but is commonly known as the Facebook Supreme Court. It's made up largely of lawyers and human rights experts. They've been tasked with having the final call on content moderation decisions. But defining speech as hurtful or even hateful is not a clear-cut thing to do. These days, it's easier than ever to spew hate or conspiracies online and to find an audience ready and waiting to agree with you. And now, that hate is leaping off of cyberspace. Divisions are hardening and increasing radicalization. Just look at what happened on January the 6th and the storming of the United States Capitol that was spurred on by former President Donald Trump's lies, the fringe conspiracy theory QAnon, and others. The ballots that you said you saw are lying around the place or in trash cans or whatever. Where are you hearing that from? Uh, I mean, it's the videos are going viral everywhere. Uh, I've seen them on TikTok. I've seen them on Facebook. For today's challenging interview, I want to speak to someone who, even after seeing the devastation caused by unchecked speech, still thinks society is better with it than without and that the only way to ensure free speech for everyone is to ensure free speech for everyone. Even if this means protecting the right of right-wing conspiracists, white supremacists, or even neo-Nazis. And I think we found just the right person. Jakob Mchimgama is a Danish lawyer and an advocate for free speech. You could say it runs in his family. My father is from uh, the Comoro Islands in, in Africa. And uh, when he was a young uh, rabble rouser, he was uh, imprisoned by French colonial power and also the subsequent uh, sort of dictatorship on, on the Comoro Islands. And, and he, he came to Europe uh, and he's out actually also since he returned, been arrested, uh, funnily enough, on, on hate speech charges for organizing protests. Mchingama first got interested in protesting free speech after the Danish newspaper Yoland Postand published controversial cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. That sort of turned into a huge global uh, crisis with, with deaths uh, around the world. The publication of the cartoons provoked outrage, attacks on Danish embassies, riots which killed dozens, and a boycott of Danish products. According to Mchingama, the definition of free speech seems to shift depending on your political affiliation. He contends people on the right will say free speech is absolute, but they'll then make an exception for political speech by Muslims who they'll broadly paint as potential terrorists. And what surprised me about that was that a lot of people, sort of liberal progressives who would see themselves as the heirs of, of enlightenment values were suddenly saying, you know, free speech uh, is important. But when free speech offends the religious sensibilities of minorities, we, um, you know, it's not really uh, that important uh, a value. 
And so they were sort of uh, operating with a two-tier free speech structure. This argument felt familiar to me. I've seen it dozens of times before in YouTube videos and big debate shows. Self-anointed experts are always so sanctimonious about their right to spout off on anything and everything, no matter the consequences. But if you try to suggest common sense regulations, then you're next. Hmm. And that to me is a, a disturbing pattern in free speech debates. I told Mchingama how I see this as terribly dangerous. The truth cannot exist um, outside of the ability to say the truth in defiance of power. Free speech allows you to, you know, play that game of David and Goliath and win, right? In this part of the world, if we talk about sort of the liberal democracies in the West, I think one of the problems is that we take it for granted and we don't really see all the benefits of it. And is that we focus on the harms and costs of free speech, because it's important to mention that those, you know, they are a part of free speech as well. I want to make one thing clear. There seems to be a clear demarcation that you're making between like what you're calling liberal democracies or uh, mature democracies. What's the opposite of those things and how does free speech fit into them? Well, take a look at um, Vladimir Putin's Russia. That's a that's a great example. Uh, you know, we we have a lot of uh, politicians in uh, in liberal democracies who worry about uh, social media and and fake news. But look at how social media has fed uh, Alexander Navalny's campaign against Putin. This is one guy uh, now in prison who spread a video claiming to document uh, a grotesque corruption. Uh, on the part of Vladimir Putin, and it has been shared, you know, um, more than 100 million times. You know, Russians would never see that kind of information in, in traditional media. So, so it's extremely important to sort of see, you know, the difference between, you know, being in opposition in Russia is that in the UK, you don't end up in prison. And that's, that's why I think in Western countries, journalists and politicians who are now sort of worrying a lot about free speech and want to, to have more limits on it, more restrictions, are in a certain ways acting a bit privileged. <laughs> Is free speech the same everywhere for everyone? Well, uh, no, obviously there's a lot of context to free speech, but I would say, you know, looking back at history, there's a very strong relationship between free speech and democracy. So free speech uh, had its origin in the Athenian democracy 2,500 years ago, and, you know, by our standards, the Athenian democracy had big shortcomings, but by its the standards of the day, it was a radically egalitarian democracy. What constitutes free speech in one place at one time is, you know, we would look at now and like cringe and just be like, oh, my God, what? You don't exactly. You know, the UK is one of my my favorite examples, because up until the, the 19th, the middle of the 19th century, basically uh, the lower classes were not allowed to publish uh, radical pamphlets that challenged the, the status quo, because uh, if the lower classes got these ideas into their head, the social cohesion of the class-based British society would basically collapse. And, you know, today, when we look at that, we say, oh, that's absurd. I guess my feeling is, is that's never changed, Jacob. The wealthy classes have just changed for big tech companies and social media platforms who control, who arbitrate, and who perform these acts of censorship and these acts of manoeuvring on free speech. And these tech companies are the new 
uh, Goliaths. They are the big ones. They are the powerful ones. And I think they have too much power. No, I, I think it's a, it's a huge problem with this platformization uh, of social media platforms. When it comes to free speech, the most important aspect in in keeping free speech vibrant is a culture of free speech. And that, you know, doesn't only speak to laws. It speaks to sort of the willingness of everyone to tolerate ideas that we disagree with. And the problem with these platforms is that, you know, a lot of people today get their news and share their ideas on private platforms that then regulate this speech according to very opaque procedures with constantly shifting uh, terms of service and community standards. I think we would be better off if we didn't have these huge centralized platforms. I, I think I see where you and I can work together. We we really can. That free speech can only work when everyone has it at, in an equal way. When there are gatekeepers like Facebook, like Twitter, like Google, like Apple, then those kind of bastions of free speech become tyrants because they're just too big. Free speech can only work if if it's democratized, if it's ubiquitous, if everybody has it. You know, I think there will always be some element of, of gatekeeping, but I would say that as a general rule, decentralization has been very good for free speech and centralization, whether at the level of government or private corporations has been bad for free speech. And and yes, it does, you know, also allow bad actors to promote their ideas and that can have real life consequences. Uh, again, the benefits of free speech far outweigh the harms. I guess I, I, I kind of want to stand by that point, if I might, yeah. for a moment. Um, I think we've seen enough happen in the last five, ten years in the Philippines, in Myanmar, in Sudan, in developed countries, um, to know that actually free speech running wild causes insurrection. It causes right-wing people to co-opt the idea of free speech to mean hate speech. And I think well, the time I, for that, kind of your way of thinking is on now. Hate speech is a great example because how do you, how do you define it? So if you go back uh, to British colonialism, you had uh, laws, basically hate speech laws, that were used against uh, Indian nationalists uh, who were critical of, of British colonialism. If you go to apartheid South Africa, you had hate speech laws that protected the white minority and its white supremacy system against, uh, uh, against people like Nelson Mandela, against criticism uh, of apartheid. Um, if you go to Russia, you have hate speech laws there in place uh, that that protect uh, uh, Putin's uh, Russia. So these kind of laws have uh, a long history of being abused and they will always be defined by those in power. So I'm not looking to Putin's Russia to tell me what democracy means. I'm saying we need to start asking the question sure. because when we don't ask the question, when we have rampant free speech, it, it, you get situations where people think politicians are eating babies and drinking their blood. Sure. So, and that, and that causes violence. So let's, I think let's, that let's just also be clear that uh, a lot in a lot of countries that don't have free speech, conspiracy theories, uh, you know, it's, it's not something that was invented with the internet and violent insurrection is, is, is not 
inherently associated with with free speech. I think that's incredibly uh, important to to stress that. Um, so, so as I said, yes, there are uh, problems uh, or costs and harms uh, involved in free speech, but I think you know at least if you want to regulate free speech more heavy-handedly, as as you know is on the books in in the UK with the online harms bill then you also have to at least acknowledge that you might also uh, harm certain values and that regulating or restricting free speech may not actually solve the problems that you're trying to address because those who define and enforce free speech are always those who are in power. My thanks to Danish lawyer Jakub Mchengama for that conversation, though I have to admit, I feel really unsatisfied by it. Sure enough, he made a good, clear case for near-absolute free speech, but I didn't buy it. If we as individuals should be allowed to speak our minds, and if freedom to say whatever we want is a pillar of functioning democracy, what about safety? Whose job is it to make sure that speech doesn't lead to incitement of violence? Is it reasonable to think that governments and regulators can handle this? Or should the burden be on big tech? These are the questions I wanted to know from my next pair of guests. Both have had a long history working with tech giants on the issue. Mail Gavay is a businesswoman and author who writes about big tech's empathy problems. And Matthew Boutard is a social entrepreneur who combats cyberbullying through artificial intelligence. He previously worked at Google. Both have been critical of big tech's outsized influence in our lives and what they see as negligence in protecting consumers. Yet they still think tech can help us solve some of the world's most pressing problems. So I'm curious to know from both Mail and Matthew how they reconcile the good and the bad. I'm a, a huge supporter of technology. I do believe that used properly, technology does make the world a better place. I just think that when you look at where uh, where we are right now, we are at a crossroad where technology impact on the world is not uh, necessarily net positive, as a lot of people working in tech want us to believe. Yeah, I, f- I think you know, like w- when we look back and you know what I've said about uh, you know Google, it's true for all the big tech. Um, you know they've changed our lives uh, for the good. And to me, what has um, change over the last years uh, is actually the nature of capitalism. Uh, you know, oh, capitalism wow. takes just over. Just a small thing then, just the, just a little capitalism. <laughs> exactly. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, the truth is, like, Google is not a social business. You know, Zuckerberg is not a philanthropist. Uh, they need to generate money and more and more and more money. And to do that, uh, you want to generate user engagement, acquisition, and retention. Uh, you know, social networks are very, very addictive. I, I think Matthew makes a good point. I think one of the challenges that we have nowadays is that rules and responsibilities seem to be a little blurred. We expect big companies, by the way, not just tech, to be taking responsibility for a lot of things, which are way beyond what fundamentally companies are usually created for, which is to make money. And yet somehow uh, we have kind of accepted, especially in tech, the idea that, oh, they should be self-regulating. We have 
other stakeholders like citizens uh, that we have started treating exclusively like consumers and assume that as long as we uh, feed them cheap products, there's no reason for them to complain. Why are we so forgiving of big tech when it's used to disrupt for good? Why do we have such short-term memories when that tech is used to disrupt for evil? I wonder whether it's not more a question of tech companies have managed to convince us that this is the price to pay, that disruption is the price we pay for absolute freedom of speech. Uh, that all these revolutions and all these massacres and all this bullying and all this harassment that is happening online on social media is the price to pay for people with uh, voices that were never heard before uh, for these people to have an opportunity to speak. And I think what we need to challenge, again, as, as a society, as regulators, if, if we are regulators, as citizens, if we have voting rights, as, as users, if we use this platform, is the fact that you can still help underrepresented minorities uh, to be more visible and to get together without necessarily having to also allow Nazi speeches and without like uh, tolerating harassment and bullying. And I think this, this false choice that a lot of tech companies have drilled into our brain is the thing we need to start challenging. I, I couldn't, you know, agree more. Um, you know, the big tech keep on saying this is too complicated. This is too, um, you know, too hard to solve. The yeah. issue is really, really deep. It's actually not the case. Uh, and that's uh, the, the question I'm asking myself is like, are they, do they have good intentions or, no, or not so much? In a technical perspective, the, the way um, they have developed the algorithm and the way, you know, technology was built is around artificial intelligence and machine learning. And, and the way machine learning was built by, you know, YouTube, Google, Twitter, and all of them is not the right way to solve social issues. We are teaching machines actually uh, with biases. We are teaching machine not the right way. I agree with everything that was just said. I would add a few more points. So first, I don't think that uh, tech executives wake up in the morning with evil thought and are like, how are we going to be able to disrupt the world and, and make all these people miserable? But they see freedom of speech as an absolute right, something that they defend with all their soul and all their heart and all their money. And they really believe that because of that, it implies that all the other rights should take a backseat. So things like human dignity or safety, for example, are important, but in their mind, not as important as freedom of speech. So I mean, that's that's same, but but that, that's the same as being a fundamentalist. Exactly, exactly. But again, we, we have to be more nuanced than, oh, they're just doing it for money. I mean, for sure, money has a huge impact, but it goes beyond that. It goes to this idea that freedom of speech is an absolute right. In general, these are companies where the decisions are being made by engineers. And engineers think uh, tend to think in terms of, technical problems. So as Matthew was just explaining, they think about what is the best way to optimize the algorithm. And they don't always think about the human impact. Okay. Uh, yes. Okay. I accept they are people. Bearing in mind, they're probably predominantly white male people. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The numbers are actually shocking. You know, uh, they're only 20% of tech, 20% uh, of tech is all women. It's only 20%. And then 
2% of tech are people of color. And they are the ones making decisions on a daily basis to know what to moderate and what to you know, keep or remove on the platform. That is actually very scary to us. It is a scary thought. Free speech engineered by such a homogenous group. So now I wanted to know what's next. Who should be responsible to curb online hate, conspiracy theories, um, to curb things like QAnon and radical behaviors and radical thinking? Like, should it be like a world police? Should it be Interpol? Should it be governments? Should it be groups um, within Google and such? Like, where do we want to start from? I have a fairly nuanced view on all of that. What I'm advocating for is to go back to where we were not that long ago, before tech existed, where there was a a hard-fought, hard-won balance between uh, entrepreneurial capitalism with companies that would go and innovate and try things and and learn from their mistake, and governments that would uh, regulate by giving guidelines that need to be followed. For example, uh, if you look at what exists in Europe, which, I mean, it's not perfect, but we do have free speech. And yet, following World War II, uh, Western European democracies have implemented uh, a series of measures uh, that, while protecting free speech, ensure that it isn't absolute and they take into account other values and rights, such as, as I mentioned earlier, human dignity and safety. So in Germany, in Austria, in France, for example, Holocaust denial is punishable by law. Germany has banned parties with Nazi ideologies. So we should be able to have regulators just giving broad guidelines, but it doesn't mean that they have to regulate every single post. You know, I think I would agree with Maya. Um, the first question I'm asking always is, what is hate speech? Uh, because the definition differs right. per country. You know, it differs per country. It, it is always debated in courts. I have to say, though, in a realistic way of looking at the world, like we can't expect every single tech company to be a nonprofit. Like we, we, we actually want companies uh, which are for-profit companies because this is the way we've, we've pushed a lot of innovation in the world. And so we've got to be careful to not like move to the extreme and say, oh, every tech company should be a nonprofit. I wouldn't want a world where, is, where there is only NGOs, but I also don't want a world where there is only capitalist companies. It's just, it's a balance. We always have to think about anything in life in terms of balance. And I think we're just out of balance right now. Yeah, completely out of balance. And, and I agree. What I'm very actually sad about is, the billions and the billions that um, big tech are making and how much they give away to NGOs and how much they give away to solve the issue. Um, and that's not much. That's not enough. Um, and, and that's where I want them to share a bit more. This is where I want them to be more inclusive. And, and this is where, there's, to me, there's a huge lack. You know, they, they, they can do a lot more. They can do a lot more. But the French of me, you know, talking here, you know, we talk about taxes. Uh, we talk about, um, you know, employments. We talk about diversity, um, and this is not enough. And we can do a lot more, a lot more. Thanks to Mail Gavet and Matthew Boutal for that conversation. This season of Course Correction is all about polarization and trying to build bridges to overcome our fractured ways. After talking to my guests, I realized big technology companies themselves are disrupting our speech. 
We're trying to have complex conversations with limited character counts in a noisy medium where the algorithm amplifies, oversimplifies, creating black and white viewpoints and users can lash out hatefully, hiding behind the shield of digital anonymity. Human beings are being subjected to algorithms that decide what we are fed in our news feeds. This is short-sighted. It robs us discovering ideas from different cultures and creeds. Innovation happens best when people mix together to learn and share. It seems as though the entire world is being taught to never go offline. This is intolerable. We're spending too much time sitting in silence, watching something awesome or mundane. It doesn't matter, just as long as we're connected to it. Reflection and introspection has given way to the need to always be filming, snapping or sharing. Even the term free speech itself feels somewhat outdated for the whole discussion. Sure, we can say what we want, but the question today is who gets to control how we're heard and how far our voices can reach. That speech has been forever changed by these new systems that we have to live with. The last time something like this happened was when we went from sharing stories verbally to writing and then printing them out. That changed us forever. We have yet to reconcile humanity's need for communication with tech giants' need for profits and the awesome power individuals have to disrupt speech for good or for evil. That's the people versus big tech. But what happens when we're not fighting algorithms but rather mob mentality on what's socially permissible? Well, that's next week. We'll look at cancel culture and how tech has changed how we behave with one another. Whew. That's our episode. What did you think? Exercise your right to free speech on the internet and tweet us at Doha Debates or me. I'm at Nelifer and I always really love hearing from you. So get in touch. And here's one more request. Please write us a review of the show. It really helps spread the word about what we're trying to do. Course Correction is written and produced by me, Nelifer Hidayat. Editorial and production assistance comes from Foreign Policy with producers Sarah Kendall, Sophia Sanchez and Rosie Julin. The managing director of FP Studios is Rob Sachs. The show is brought to you by Doha Debates, which is a production of Qatar Foundation. Our executive producers are Jafit Weeks, Amjad Atala and Jiga Mehta. Join us for the next episode of Course Correction and the final of our three-part arc wherever you get your podcasts.